Well, hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you are listening to yet another episode of the Midnight Mass podcast, where we are going to delve into another cult movie. And I have to say, this is just a delicious, exciting episode. Um, It has been a thrill to put it together, and I could not have done it without my fantastic co-host, my friend, the filmmaker himself, Michael Verratti. Hello, Peaches. Hi, don't you love it? I give you a big intro every ep. And you know I love a big intro. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm particularly thrilled to talk about this movie as well because it's a movie that I've always loved, but much like yourself, through the discussions this week, I really feel like I got to rediscover how much fun and and uh great this film is and you know how it's truly earned its place in the cult pantheon it's weird you're gonna hear me say it repeatedly throughout the episode but um i always knew it was a good movie um but it's like through doing this this episode and and just re-watching it and and talking about it i feel like i have a a new favorite film and 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 like i can't wait to watch it again (laughs) what what is this movie we discuss uh on the 23rd day of the month of september in an early year of a decade not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. That's right, today we're talking about the 1986 Frank Oz-directed cult classic, Little Shop of Horrors. Our first special guest is my own drag daughter herself, Bob the Drag Queen. And so the, the the genesis of this actually came from Bob. And in part, it was because, um, you know, I was pushing Bob to come and be on the show. And, and let's face it, like, we love Bob. Bob is so brilliant and such a, such a great person to talk to about almost anything. So it was like, okay, Bob, what cult movie do you want to cover on Midnight Mass? And funnily enough, I thought that she was going to choose something more, as she would say, black, because Bob has said to me more than once that a lot of my taste is white people stuff, which I kind of love because it it has given me a a sort of a new um, way to consider how, you know, across the board, depending on what community you grew up in, and I have a partner from another country, uh, so so it's also a national thing, but where you grew up, how you grew up, you know, our our shared um, pop culture experiences are very different. And, you know, and, you know, that that makes, uh, you know, changes things as far as what we know. Yeah, and it totally tracks because truly a cult film by its very de- definition is a film from which a community is gathered around. And different communities, of course, are going to gravitate towards different art. So it is is a very uh, important discussion to have that we, what may be pop culture to one group of people may not be pop culture to another group of people. Absolutely. And I think specifically, we should just say now that Michael and I um, have every intention, especially as far as the black queer experience goes, of, of having guests on to specifically talk about films, um, you know, that, that might have a special place, maybe even more so if you bl- grow up black, but especially if you grow up black and queer. So, you know, we will eventually be excited to cover Mahogany, of course, you know, Pam Greer in the black exploitation films and... Well, The Wiz, I think, is another one that actually f- fits in very well course, with today's yeah. film. Um, and, uh, 
And, and well, you'll hear Bob and us talk about the fact that we may cover the color purple at some point, you know. So I think it was definitely my intention um, to lead Bob down that road. And I forgot that Bob's favorite film, the film that, you know, it makes the most sense uh, more than any other is Little Shop of Horrors because, you know, this is the film that Bob first presented to me as a, as a parody project uh, when we became Drag Mother and Drag Daughter. Uh, Bob's written a parody of Little Shop of Horrors. And, um, and so it, 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 it is so exciting. I think you found this as well to actually enjoy the love of this film through our guests, which then in part, you know, made us love it even more. No, it's true because what's really great about Little Shop of Horrors is that it began as as a a brilliant film and like a fine wine has continued to age beautifully. And what we discuss both uh, with both of our guests today is how this film is presented in such a layered and smart way that as you grow with the film, your attachment to the film grows as well because you start realizing the things that maybe when you were watching it as a kid, you liked the puppets and you liked the songs and it had this kind of like colorful, let's face it, Frank Oz made this movie. Frank Oz comes from the world of Jim Henson and Muppets. And there is a little bit of that aesthetic to this film, albeit in a darker way. So if you discover this movie young, that's going to pull you in. And then as you grow up and you stay a fan of this film, you realize there are messages here. There's uh, a commentary on socioeconomic status and class status. And uh, there's a lot of, of things to be said about misogyny. And uh, the fact that this is all packaged up in this big, bright movie musical that happens to have a killer plant is a testament to the storytelling. And it's really lovely that it has the edge that I would imagine the off-Broadway musical had because looking at this film, it comes from a cult film. It, it, it was born as a different film, you know, a Roger Corman film, actually um, with Jack Nicholson, a very young Jack Nicholson who plays the, the dental right. patient in the uh, original film. Um, that inspired a musical to be created that ran off-Broadway. And because, by virtue of the fact that it was off-Broadway, I think it did have that edge, that social commentary, that the freedom to kind of go to those darker places. You could be concerned that when someone like Frank Oz, who's undoubtedly talented, but also very family-friendly and very uh, commercially successful, you know, would, would helm a project like this, that it might lose some of its edge or its grit, and it absolutely does not. I mean, let's face it. Frank Oz is one of the most famous drag queens of all time because he is <laughs> Miss Piggy. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, that subversion exists. Let, let, let us not forget the cultural, uh, you know, gift that is Miss Piggy. And I, I should make an aside because I do think an apology is due to Hecklina. Like, we're really sorry you're not the only pig in drag. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Anyway, I think it's a really great point uh, that you reference, you know, that this began its life as a Roger Corman film that was made for something to the tune of like $31,000, which as you know, is barely anything for yeah. a feature. Um, and Roger Corman in of himself is a legendary cult figure. You know, there's there's a whole landscape of cult cinema that we would not have without Roger Corman. And if this movie was just part of his arsenal, it would always, uh, you know, have that badge of honor. Um, but that someone saw this this low budget killer plant movie 
and was like, this could be even more subversive, which is funny because Roger Corman is already quite subversive and, and turns it into a musical. I'm thinking about sort of that trajectory because we see that a lot now, you know, like Evil Dead was turned into an off-Broadway musical. Reanimator was turned mm-hmm. into an off-Broadway musical. Toxic Avenger has been turned into a musical. Movies like Heathers and Mean Girls, and I know Darren's working on Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. But was Little Shop one of the first examples of sort of a late-night cult movie that someone was like, yeah, we can do this? And it changed the conversation. That's a great point. So we challenge you, the listener, uh, fellow movie nerds out there, uh, let us know what 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 other perhaps cult movies. I mean, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, God, Freaks could have been a great musical, you know, uh, you know, and maybe it's not too late, you know, and I did get to see and this this was um, more recent that they did this, even though the film is older, um, a fantastic. Fantastic! Oh, I was going to say it's, it's not a musical. Never mind. I'm sorry. But I saw a Night of the Living Dead stage show uh, done in London that was just fabulous. But it was it was not a musical. Anyway, uh, I, I think that's a great question. So listeners, please uh, illuminate us to what other films, um, uh, cult films specifically, have been turned into musicals pre-Roger uh, Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. Right. And also let us know what musical you want Peaches and I to, to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm personally thinking that we could do Solo 120 Days of Song. Oh, I think that would yes. be... Uh, <laughs> well, I have to say uh, one of the best moments uh, in my cult movie um, sort of career was taking a leap of faith. And after many, many, many years of producing Showgirls screenings, I partnered with the creators of Showgirls the Musical to present it in San Francisco. So I can't take credit for the, the the, the music or the writing of that show, but I can take credit for producing it in San Francisco. And um, oh my God, it was just fabulous. And they they totally nailed it. And there's something really great about um, taking this movie that you love and, and, and turning it into a musical, which is why these things are for fans and they succeed with fans. And it's very different than something like, um, I would say, you know, the Broadway version now. I think we're intentionally not cre- including things like Beetlejuice or some of the more obvious, you know, big budget, big money, big, 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 you know, um, where we're, they're, they're trying to cast the widest net possible. Something like Evil Dead the Musical, like, this is for a niche audience. Like, you know. Sure. But it does go back to that cult blazing the trail, right? You know, yeah. if that had not worked with niche films and niche audiences and the money wasn't made, would we have gotten Beetlejuice the Musical? I think that it's all a trajectory. And as tends to be a common theme here on Midnight Mass, it's the weirdos and the freaks and the, you know, the late night queens of which we are that, you know, did it first that let, you know, so that's exciting. I'm part of a long tradition of drag theater in San Francisco who who has done parodies um, of movies that goes all the way back to the Coquettes and the Sick and Twisted Players. And one of the things to note is a lot of people say, well, why haven't you done Little Shop or why haven't you done Grease? And things that are um, famous for being musicals, I cannot do. 
uh, because there's a whole licensing issue. So I can't parody songs um, that, that are original to someone else uh, and then present it and get away with it. I can take a movie um, that, that is a musical and, and not do the musical, but do the movie. So I have a, a, a version of Grey Gardens. I have a version of Bring It On, a version of Mean Girls that are my own Peaches Christ weird parodies, but they don't have the music. And so for something like Little Shop of Horrors, I don't think I could get away with presenting a version of Little Shop of Horrors that didn't have the fabulous music. So the alternative would be for me to license the musical and present it straight up, which, I mean, my God, maybe maybe I would do that someday. That brings us all the way around and is a great segue into introducing our first guest, who you already have mentioned, the amazing, iconic Bob the Drag Queen, who, when you met, presented to you uh, their own uh, version of Little Shop of Horrors as a drag parody, which we discuss in the interview. And uh, so maybe this is the universe's way that you and Bob, uh, you two, uh, she and you can can make that happen after today. Okay, without further ado, you know her as the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, your drag superstar and my drag daughter, it's Bob the Drag Queen. Hello everyone and welcome to Midnight Mass with me, Bob the Drag Queen. I'm here with my very special guest today, Miss Peaches Christ. She's a San Francisco icon, legend, and most importantly, drag mom to Bob the Drag Queen. Peaches, how are you? Just do the show with Michael from now on. No, no, no. Michael is here too. Michael and I are so glad to have you as our special guest. I, I guess uh, to start, I have to say, getting you to sort of decide on what cult movie you wanted to tackle was a little bit of a challenge, but I'm glad that you chose this one because, and I suggested it to you because I knew that you loved it. It gave me the opportunity to rewatch it. And I have to say, having just rewatched it and not seen it probably, you know, since, well, I don't know, over 10 years, maybe 20 years. Really? You, got, you can go that long without watching Little Shop of Horrors is such a good movie. Well, here's the thing, Bob. I kind of forgot like how those movies that you know are really great movies, but for whatever reason, I hadn't rewatched it. So I'm watching it last night and I'm like, I think this might be a perfect movie. Would you, oh, yeah. would you say that? Oh yeah, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors is one of the best movies of all time. It is, I mean, it is brilliant. Frank Oz snapped on this movie. Uh, Alan Minken snapped on this music. The cast snapped with their acting. Um, Jim Henson snapped with these puppets. Like, this is probably... And it's also a lot of these um, these people before they went um, Disney-fied. Like, before Frank Oz and Alan Minken and um, and Jim Henson got all disney this was kind of when they were doing their grittier stuff. Well, what surprised me, actually, is when Peaches texted me last night to say that she was re-watching it and was sort of captivated, like, wow, this movie is great. And I was like, yes, well, welcome to the party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that did surprise me, Peaches, that you hadn't revisited it in a while, is in speaking to what Bob is talking about, is 
it seems like so up your alley. You know, one of the things that we talked about with Jinx and Dela when they were on for Death Becomes Her was not only the cult appeal and the queer appeal of some of these movies, but the drag appeal. And there's something about Little Shop of Horrors that seems to have a drag connection. I've seen many, many queens uh, do Ellen Green. Uh, I've also seen the Boulay brothers do The Plant. Uh, I'm just wondering if maybe you have any thoughts, Bob, about the drag connection to this movie, if there is one. No, for sure there is one. And not just the Boulay I mean, uh, you know, um, Vicky Vox notoriously did The Plant in the uh, outdoor theater production in the UK, which I wish I could have seen. I've seen clips and it was a it was apparently iconic and legendary. Not just that, also the nightlife connections that it has had over the years. It has um, this like high drag camp element with the voice of The Plant and with the urchins, the three, the three black girls who are very like camp. And then also Ellen Green, who's in full drag. I mean, she's in full <laughs> drag throughout the entire movie. I've seen some really great productions. I was in a production in high school. I I've saw I saw um, MJ Rodriguez and Amber Riley um, here in um, Los Angeles doing this show. Like I, this is one of my. You know, they're remaking it, which of course I'm nervous about, and I'm afraid that there's going to be an, um, a CGI plant. But Ugh. I don't hate CGI like everyone else hates it. But I do appreciate the amount of work that went into the original plant. It's probably somewhere hanging up in a warehouse, falling apart and deteriorating. But I know that it was filmed in slow motion. Like Rick Moranis and whoever the puppeteer was inside the puppet were doing this whole thing, all of the plants dialogue in slow motion, and they sped it up for the movie, which is crazy. I, it's funny that you bring that up because it was on my list of things to bring up. And, you know, we talk a lot on this show, especially about films from before CGI times uh, mm -hmm. that really, even though maybe the effects are cruder, I think they have more heart. I think they have more character. In fact, I find it more believable than something that's more hyper-realistic and computer-generated. And this plant especially, I didn't know about the uh, the way they filmed it until recently as well when I was watching the uh, sequel to the documentary about 80s horror films, which I loved that they included Little Shop of Horrors, and they really included it as, as its own feature, because it is a horror musical, and they talked about the way that they did that, what, what Bob just described, and it's like that kind of attention to detail, not only does it hold up having just watched it last night, like the movement of the mouth, the movement of yeah. the puppet, the expressions, from the time it's a baby plant all the way up to the giant plant, you know who that is, and it's a real character, and oh, yeah. it neither... You know, it does not feel like a puppet. It's just brilliant. This is something I learned in college about puppeteering, okay? So when people talk, our mandible moves. The top of your head doesn't actually move. It's just the bottom of your head moving. Your jaw goes down, but your eyes stay in the same place. Now, when Kermit the Frog talks, his eyes move, and his mandible mm. stays in the same place. So they're kind of talking like this, and that's how <laughs> a lot of puppets talk. The top of the head and the bottom of the mouth are both moving, making them, you know, like a hand. As, as Most puppeteers don't actually do that. And then this plant is doing the human thing. Like the mouth is actually moving like this. And when it says like mom, the lips go in. And when it says pop, the like it is, it's actually like, like making the shape of the mouth <laughs> and not just going up and down. Like Kermit, maybe the lips don't go in, but it's like the lips kind of smush on like woo woo when it goes, when, um, when Levi Stubbs goes woo woo. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is one of my favorite parts on the song when he goes woo woo. He does it a lot. He, he does a lot of woo woos. Because you know, you know who the new plan is going to be is Billy Porter. Oh, wow. Oh, is that, has that been announced? Yes. Or you're just been assuming? Because nope, it, it is, is, it, it's maybe the most obvious, <laughs> you know, <laughs> casting at the moment that you could possibly right? have. And that's not to say anything bad about Billy Porter. I love Billy Porter. But no one's surprised by that casting. Yeah. So Billy Porter has been officially announced as the plant in the new. Well, he, I think he's the only person who's actually been announced so far. But yeah, so, I, and Levi Stubb was just so brilliant. I mean, when I say brilliant, like, watching Levi Stubb's performance at the Oscar Awards is also great um, because they got nominated for Mean Green Mother because I think Mean Green Mother was written just for the movie. Um, it was. And watching Levi Stubbs from the Four Tops perform Mean Green Mother it was just like, and it just, I mean, it, it really it really is a perfect movie. It is, it is perfect. This movie, if, if I could... If only one thing could make it better, because you know they actually shot an, an original ending. They changed it because they're in the in the play. The plant just eats everyone. Spoiler alert. I mean, granted, this is literally thirty some odd years later, so you should have watched it by now. But yeah. um, and if you're watching a, po- a podcast that reviews movies, I'm sure you know by this point that you're gonna get some spoilers when you watch a particular episode. Anyway, the original they shot the original movie ending, which is where the plant just takes over the world and 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 spreads its spores and and. They they found it too disturbing, so they changed it to the point where where Seymour uh, defeats the plant, and I don't mind that ending. But I've seen the alternate ending, and it's actually really good too. Yeah, that's what you get for audience testing. Sometimes you know, tell a story. Uh, so Bob, you were talking about how this is uh, really a movie that is is one of your favorites. You were in this show in high school. But do you remember when you first encountered the movie? Did you encounter it because you did the show? Or were you a fan before that? It was like one of those movies that was like kind of scary and like bothered me. But I also found it really interesting and entertaining. So I couldn't stop watching it. But it it did have uh, horror. And there was eating people. And then there was chopping up body parts. And like just creepy shadows. And I remember a moment that really like used to freak me out was the urchin sliding into the shadows um, after the song um, Get It. And they'd, like, come out of the shadows. They would all three go back into the shadows. And I remember, like, this is just so scary. But it was campy enough that as a child, I could still love it. Like, it wasn't, like, Scream or Freddy Krueger, which is also campy. To be fair, Freddy Krueger is probably everybody as campy as Little Shop of Horrors. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true. I love that Scream is a movie you could have watched as a child. Um, I was just a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually don't know. When did Scream come out? Let me see. Uh, 97. Yeah, 97. Girl, we know. You're talking to two horror experts. It was 96. Exactly what I said. Michael said 97. Um, (laughs) Drag um, drag her. It came out out in December of 1996, which to me tracks it as a 1997. To be fair, that is true. It came out at the tail end of the year. I feel like such a dingbat. It, it is one of those things where I've always known that Little Shop of Horrors is an iconic cult movie and, and, and really great. But rewatching it last night and also showing it to my partner who'd never seen it because my partner uh, is from Turkey and, and grew up without a lot of the movies that we, you know, have here. By the way, side um, note, I saw a guy in the grocery store that they did look just like Nihat. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, Jacob. really? I was like, Jacob, that guy looks like Nihat. And he was like, oh, my God, that guy looks just like Nihat. <laughs> anyway. What if Nihat's been sneaking down to L.A. behind my back? 
She's not exposing I, him right I, now. I might need to. I might need to go accuse him right this second. <laughs> Sorry, the podcast can wait. Um, but a couple things. One is I want to know uh, what part you played in the show you did in high school, and two, uh, when you did the show, uh, were, were you surprised by the ending? Because if you were introduced to the movie first, you know the ending in the show is actually quite different, which is where the plant eats Seymour. Yeah. So I was in the core. I cannot sing. So and if you ever hear from me in a musical, I was I was That's not one true. of the main characters. That's true. That's Shut true. the fuck up. I have <laughs> I've never been the main character in any play I've ever been in. Um so I was in the chorus. Legally black. This is true, but I didn't have to sing. I mean, are, are, is that just so beneath you to mention that no, someone but, but put, I, gave you I didn't the have lead? to sing. I didn't have to sing oh, is what I'm true. getting at. You lip synced. Okay. I was the funky monkey in The Wiz in high school, but also oh. doesn't have to sing. And I wasn't surprised because I had seen it. So Little Shop had just gone on Broadway for the first time around the time I was in like mm-hmm. maybe like 10th grade. Little Shop had just gone on Broadway for the first time. Um, so it was popping up everywhere. So I had before I was in it, I had seen the ending somewhere else. There were a lot of productions of Little Shop going up in my high school years because of the Broadway mm. show. So you've seen little, you've seen the movie Dream Girls, yeah? Yes. Yes. You know that big guy in the beginning playing guitar saying, "Baby, I'm taking the long world home because my baby don't live here no more." He's the plant on Broadway in Little Shop. Good oh, trivia. Awesome. So if singing wasn't an impediment and you got to go back to Little Shop, what character would you want to play? I'm definitely the plant. I have a, a, the <laughs> essence of the plant, the vibe of the plant. I love um, the idea of voice acting. And not as if I have a lot of experience in it, but I love the idea of voice acting. And it's just such a great role. You, ha- you There's so much fun to be had. I remember when my college did it, I was not in my college production. Um, but just like meeting i remember a good friend of mine played the plant and i would just watch him during rehearsals instead of watching the stage i was just watching this <laughs> this guy standing off to the side of the stage were you jealous to be honest yeah i was jealous i remember like going home and practicing and like singing being like <laughs> what if i was the plant what if it was yeah. me what if he and the understanding both got sick and i had to come forward and play the plant and everyone would <laughs> gag <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I think one thing that you bring up the Broadway incarnation that's really interesting, for, for especially for those of us who grew up with this and may not know sort of the history of the project, it actually started as a Roger Corman B-movie in 1960 and, you know, was was obviously really bizarre, was dark. Jack Nicholson actually plays the... Uh, patient in the film who who's obviously into pain and torture which i think we should talk about that whole that whole stuff all of that stuff in a moment because it's so queer it's like you know a Folsom street fair scene or something um steve steve martin is such a masochist but but yeah, yeah the movie was a roger corman film and then it became an off-broadway musical before it became uh, the movie and it's it's queer producer and mogul David Geffen who actually uh, brought it to life and brought brought the team together and when you brought up the alternate ending I went and read about it because um, I I hadn't realized that they spent a ton of money to film that whole ending and really that is the real ending and you can currently see it on YouTube apparently it gets pulled down frequently so you'll see when you go looking for it on YouTube um, people say okay I've put it up again or whatever so 
right now it's on YouTube. You can you can search for it. And it is, I mean, it is a Godzilla, King Kong, incredible, yeah. dark, you know, apocalyptic finale. And I actually was thinking in this sort of post-pandemic, post-9-11 world, you know, that, that we're, we're, we're not in the sort of idealism of the 80s, if the ending might um, actually Beats play better now. No, I think, <laughs> oh, I think but- it actually might be, I actually think it might play better. I don't know, but I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on on that and and you know uh, fr- from both of you actually I think it's really interesting to know like which ending do you think you prefer you know because but both endings the the movie we know with the happy ending and this this alternate ending you can you can watch and I have to say I'm split down the middle I'm not quite sure well I I think that the plant is a villain you can really root for um, so when the plant wins, you're not really that mad because it seems like this is a the humans have created this madness themselves. Like it, it, it you know, a lot of people don't talk about it, but uh, little I, I wrote a paper in college about Little Shop about how Little Shop is really just the story of Macbeth. Um, it's just the story of Macbeth, except it's a little bit reversed, not reversed. Like it's not what you think it is. Like for example, Lady Macbeth is actually the urchins because they're always urging Seymour to do these things. And then the plant is actually the witches because the witches are like, all this great stuff's going to happen. Just hear me out. And Mushnik is Duncan. Like it's all this like really wonderful, like referencing back and forth from Macbeth to Little Shop of Horrors, except the plant is fun and someone that you can root for. I like the original ending. And I, it also has one of the most beautiful shots in the whole movie, which is where the urchins are all marching up in front of that big American flag. Something about all the urchins like appearing uh. in front of that huge American flag is yeah. Just one of the best shots in the whole movie. Well, can I just say that all of the shots of the urchins are incredible. Oh, yeah. Right? And that obviously was, it, they designed it to build to that finale shot with them in front of the American flag. Yeah. But I have to say that, just to jump in here, that those three women and the way that the, the director and uh, the, the, the choreographer worked together, the costume designer, they make those three just kind of steal the show, which is hard oh, to yeah. do, totally. you know, yeah. There's this really fucking great shot what looks like the cosmos. It's like in a, you know, it's got this big Star Wars opening to it. And then you realize it's just a puddle of like, crap yeah. and you throw the the, the <laughs> beer bottle in it's so from the top this movie is like oh my god this is brilliant and when it's raining outside the urchins never get wet i don't know if you noticed this it is <laughs> rain. it is it is pouring rain and they're in uh. the rain but where they're standing it's not raining so as they move, there's clearly something above them blocking them from getting wet. And they're doing uh-huh. the, you know, here it comes, baby. Tell them. And because they and they look pristine in these really beautiful, like, polka dot 50s style, 60s style dresses. These, like, co- these Coco Chanel looking type moments. Mm-hmm. The bubble skirt. Yeah. And even when they, they do this moment where they, uh, they're all on the, uh, the fire escape and they're, mm-hmm. you know, doing this, like... Everything about the choreography, also not only that, but like there's some really interesting stuff about the movie just in general. For example, Michelle Weeks never worked again. Isn't that odd? Oh, wow. That is crazy. Crazy. 
Because Tashina Arnold and Tisha Campbell went on to have very, very, very successful careers. They did so many mm-hmm. things. Uh, they did, you know, uh, Everybody Loves, uh, Everybody Hates Chris, um, Martin, um, all these shows. But then this lady, she just kind of was just like, I don't even know if she's still alive. It's just like she just never works again, which is so uh, wild to me. It's interesting. I think we all wish that we would have these sort of big successful movie careers. But I've met a few people. Actually, one of them is Apollonia. When I did the, yeah. the show with Apollonia, she and I got to, to you know, talk and, and have stayed in touch. And one of the things she said was she was, you know, an actor. A lot of people believe that Prince um, put her in the movie because she was his girlfriend. And in fact, Prince and, and Apollonia, you know, they, they intentionally designed it to look that way publicly. Yeah. But, but she was an actress. She was replacing... Vanity, and she was brought in on an audition. He auditioned a bunch of girls, and then he created this character Apollonia with her. She did mm-hmm. the movie, and after being in show business for a few years, she actually said, "You know what? I realized it wasn't for me." Yeah, yeah. And as you know, Bob, it is this thing that you believe you want with all your heart, and you pursue it. You know, but it's not maybe everything or there's maybe obstacles or hurdles that you hadn't yet considered. Right. That, yeah. you know, change your life. Well, so maybe she just chose to leave. Rick Moranis also quit acting. Yeah. To be clear, by the way, Rick Moranis did not quit after Little Shop. Rick Moranis had a very true, long true. career after Little Shop with, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Spaceballs and, later, and I Shrunk yeah. the Kids. But yeah. I think it was actually the, the tragedy of his wife passing. And after mm-hmm. his wife passed, he was like, I actually need to take care of my family and he he gave up acting and I I actually got to meet Rick Moranis at the like 25th anniversary of Little Shop of Horrors oh. um it was maybe it was the 30 years I can't remember but it was it was the maybe the something anniversary they did it at BAM and me Thorgy and a drag queen named Dallas Dubois all played we did like a almost like a Rocky Horror in front of the screen performance type thing where we performed to it and Rick Moranis was there. And I'll never forget Rick Moranis said, uh, quote, uh, that I was a tough act to follow. Oh, that's awesome. Because I, I did like a big intro for him. What's interesting to Peach's point, as well as is what this movie is about, is, is the idea that when the spotlight shifts to you, it, it isn't for everybody because you have to keep feeding that plant. And sometimes it becomes a bargain that you maybe didn't know when you entered into it. And one of the things that I really want to talk about when it, with regard to this movie, because a constant theme on Midnight Mass is uh, cult films often have many layers. You know, there's obviously the thing that draws us to it, draws us to it, whether it's the subversive or the camp or whatever, but the staying power is there's always more beneath it. And Little Shop of Horrors certainly is a movie that has a lot of so- social commentary and I just uh, wanted to dig into that with you a little bit well I, I actually reference Little Shop in, in, in a lot of interviews because it's, I always say it's not really about a plant it, it really has nothing to do with a plant it's actually about uh, greed and desire and the outcast wanting so badly to have the things that they thought they could never have and they get a taste of it and then it starts to take over their lives and they realize that that maybe it was too much for them, or maybe they they wanted more than they realized it did. So this movie is perfect. It is a very very good movie, and I really love the themes of like watching this like sad meat kid become this like huge botanical uh, superstar, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a hilarious thought in itself that someone is a botanical superstar um, and is the biggest act, you know. 
on TV, bigger than hula hoops, they say at one point, then watching him like regret it and then just do the craziest things. Maybe that's why the ending, the way it was presented originally, didn't work as well, because it doesn't sort of uh, feed into the more common narrative of that desire for uh, fame and fortune and capitalism changing who you are. You know, Seymour doesn't change. Like, he, he's pretty pure throughout the show. He and Audrey, their relationship is so lovely and so sweet. And so he doesn't sort of go on that journey of becoming the monster, you know, with success. That if he had, then I don't think we would have been bothered by the idea of the plant eating him at the end. Oh, well, um, I feel differently. You know. I think he actually does go through it, go through a journey because he is a nope, bit of a pushover. Nope, you're wrong. No, why? <laughs> he's a bit of because he's a bit of a pushover and he's a pushover the entire movie. But mm-hmm. his moral compass is certainly challenged when he's first presented with the opportunity. Because at first he's like, I got to keep this plant alive, so I'll just cut myself and feed the plant. Mm-hmm. And this is how I keep the plant alive. I'll, I will sacrifice myself, which is how he has been the whole movie, sacrificing himself for Mushnik, sacrificing himself for Audrey, sacrificing himself for eventually the plant. And then it gets to the point where he's has to make a decision, and he decides to kill um, Oren the doctor, Dr. Scrivello. And he's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and... Well, he doesn't kill him. Well, he goes to kill him, but then he actually... He chickens out and can't do it. He cannot bring himself to kill the doctor. But then the doctor just ends up dying right in front of him. And then he's like, I can either leave this body here or I... So so it's really interesting how it goes from like, I would never... I will hurt myself. I will watch someone hurt themselves and get rid of the body. And then he gets to the point where he's just fully basically without shoving pushing mushing into the plant so to the point where, he, where he's like he's like uh I, I hid it in the plant and he so it went from like hurting yourself to like right. watching laissez-faire watch them hurt themselves to like yeah. actively engaging in murder i think the reality is is the reason the original ending didn't play for audiences at the time is because inherently we know it's true because the movie is all about opportunism and what happens when we you know, do terrible things to push ourselves forward at the cost of others. And talking about this, especially post a pandemic where people can't even wear a fucking mask without causing controversy because they don't want to think beyond themselves. Of course, the plant's going to win. And people don't want to look at art that reminds us that we're assholes. And so ultimately, yeah, Seymour's trajectory is is what Bob says because he makes the selfish choice in the end and the plant wins. And and he also does it in a way that still makes him a wimp. <laughs> like right. like he's yeah. not, he doesn't bludgeon Mushnik. He just like uh, like tricks him into doing it. I agree with everything you're saying. And and one thing that I'm I'm remembering reacting to while I watched it. Well, there's a few things. One is I think watching this movie today with everything that's going on with, you know, California being on fire and New York being flooded and tornadoes in Maryland, you know, you can't help but think about like the climate change allegory that's going on in addition to the the things that Bob broke brought up like with you know capitalism and greed it is so prescient and especially now you know um you know i feel like we're living in this this we we've all created an audrey too and now you know she's she's you know she's maybe 
we we can't turn back. I don't know. Um, yeah. So there's that, and then this other thing that I really want to talk about because I, I I know we're, we're, this is one of those great episodes where we're so we're all so excited about the movie that we could just probably talk about it for hours, which I'm I oh, yeah. really could, you know, I just loved it and and rewatching it, and so with the Doctor, a couple things. One is like how queer is it, and two is. I actually feel like it was a bit shocking to see how unapologetically they presented the violence, you know, against um, Audrey. Like, you know, yeah, her black guy was really, you know, kind of campy or whatever, but just the fact that they show in silhouette him hitting her, it it was brilliant in a way because as an audience member, I'm like, fucking kill him, feed him to the plant. Like, I was completely like... I would have actually been fine with Seymour shooting him in the head, you know, but but I found it to be just kind of shocking that that element. And I think there's a, a couple things that make this this show very adult and off Broadway. One is the the, the violence, and and another is. Um, can we all agree that we should bring back the expression "tough titty"? It, it, where did tough it go? Titty. Why did tough why titty. did it, why did it go away? So there's that, and then also just the queerness of the dental scene. You know, the the the, the sort of um, the sexuality of that scene. You know, um, so I know that's a lot to throw at you both, but discuss. No, it's great. I I love um, Doctor Scarvello's scene. It's really really good. Um, I really am a big fan of also the people. I don't even. I'm, that's the, I'm not actually sure how big these celebrities were at the time. By the time the movie made its way to me, Steve Martin was the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids guy. Steve, um, not Steve, uh, um, Rick Moranis was the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids guy. Steve Martin was the guy that movie with Queen Latifah. From, that's what, <laughs> the, from my black experience. He's the guy from the movie with Queen Latifah. Um, Bill Murray was in Space Jam. From, that was my, and then of course, you know, Tisha Campbell, Tisha Arnold were from Martin. So like, I, I remember watching being like, oh my God, look at these people who are like so famous now. But I don't think they even were that big at the time. They, I don't think they were super huge and super famous. At the time, they were just kind of like up and coming artists. Um, and that, you know, that dentist scene, which, by the way, there's cuts from the dentist scene that have made their way to the internet. There's also cuts from um, the Meek Shell Inherit, where they did this whole um, scarf dance. So uh, Sid Sharice and Gene Kelly and um, did this famous scarf dance, and they are referencing the scarf dance in this clip scene from Meek Shell Inherit. It's kind of like a parody, obviously. One of the, my favorite shots from the dentist scene is Inside the Mouth. Uh, That's a wild shot, right? Brilliant. It's so crazy, yeah. I have no clue how that was even done. It's a puppet, right? It's gotta be a puppet. I was looking at it thinking they've got the best puppeteers working on this show, so they, they basically said to them, build a mouth puppet that we can uh, stick a camera in. But it's it's genius. Yeah, it's got to be a forced perspective shot, kind of like how they did the book in the train and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, where they just built a giant book to make it look like someone was reading a book with a train in the distance. It's probably like a giant mouth that's in Frank Oz's garage right now or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got a feeling that that thing that Steve Martin is holding is actually a lot bigger than it looks because of the perspective. So he's holding the drill you know, yeah. hitting this guy's gums on accident, obviously not doing an accident, with the lady standing right over his shoulder while he does it as like a dental hygienist. In that same shot, the mouth is actually singing. So the person yeah. is going like, hi, <laughs> oh, this movie, this movie has everything. And they thought of everything. And it's really a filmic uh, interpretation of a musical. Like, I love that they use uh, all, all these sound stages 
but in a way that is completely filmic, right? Like all the sets, all of the camera movement, all of the shots, including the shot of um, uh, Seymour holding the baby plant at the beginning from the baby plant's point of view. Yeah. You know, they, they he really go and the camera lifting through the sky, uh, the way, uh, again, the way they deal with the urchins and the, you know, they could have really, you know, I see a lot of musical um, to film adaptations happen where they don't fight to make it a movie. You know, it, it, right. it feels like you're watching a, a recording of a play or a musical. This is a movie. It's a film. And some of the fun stuff that, you know, would just not make sense. Like, the way that Steve Martin flies through the air, like, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. like, it, like, like, who's flying through the air on a motorcycle in New York City? But it doesn't matter because it's a movie and it's fabulous and it's, like, you know, just ridiculous. Or the way that his motorcycle just sort of, like, stops on its own or, you know. He just looks back at it. It also shows, like, he's really in control. Everyone's afraid. Even the motorcycle's afraid to not yeah. stop when Steve Martin says it should stop, you know? And it's also funny, too, because Steve Martin is, is is kind of in 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 every other movie he's kind of a um Rick Moranis type. He's kind yeah. of a bumbling idiot type in this the movie. The jerk. Like, yeah. In this movie, yeah, right. he's the jerk, yeah. He is the jerk I, ironically in this movie. Yeah. But what I think yeah. is great about it is, is is it's a inversion of what Steve Martin usually does, but it's also an exemplification of what he does because Steve Martin is one of those comedians who knows exactly what he looks like and he sort of looks like a boring white guy, you know, like with a, in a boring white guy in authority. And he's always played that for comedy. But in this movie, as Peach has pointed out with the sadism and, and the menace of that, he it, it just takes it to another place. And I think it's so he's making fun of himself and he's making fun of the kind of, of, of guy that he is. But there's just something evil about it here that is so in control that's perfect. You're right, Bob. It's perfect. It's a perfect performance. I, I can't even imagine who they're going to have play Dr. Scrivello after him because, honestly, I have a hard time imagining anyone in any of these parts because they are all just so perfect for this role. I, I would have gone really wild and maybe cast Jennifer Hudson as the plant to really flip this on his head or maybe even CeeLo Green would also be a great plant. CeeLo Green just has a really brilliant voice. I'm also now looking at the scene where where um, Oren Cervello comes in and then the patient is literally clinging to the ceiling like, <laughs> like a cat and they just fall into the chair. Again, genius filmic moment. Like it, it's, it does not stop. It, like we keep saying, it's a perfect film. And, and, and on the Midnight Mass movie podcast, cult movies often are not perfect films. I mean, you know, that, that actually kind of becomes a, a, a rare thing. They're, they're, they're often, you know, flawed in some ways. And I actually really, uh, you know, just loved it so much. Like I loved it so much that I'm like pissed at myself for not enjoying it. Like Bob said at the beginning of the show, uh, uh, where have I been? I saw it when I was a kid. I loved it when I was a kid. I didn't realize how great it actually is as as a work of art. And so the very end when he when he comes out of the shrine to his mom and he's doing this like so this this character is obviously some parody of Elvis, some yes. weird subverted Elvis parody, and he is he's going at the patient who like lands perfectly in the chair. It's such a great <laughs> yeah. shot. And then he's shooting the water in, in his mouth from like really far and yeah. scooting closer and closer. And then when he spits, it turns into like slosh from um, the plant shop. So like the way they yeah. go, even from scene to scene, it, it has the same vibe as uh, realizing you're not looking at the galaxy. You're just looking at a puddle 
of right. yeah, 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 yeah. in in um in the in an alley in Skid Row. Don't even get me started on Skid Row. Let's next discuss the genius that is Ellen Green and yes. 100%. really really talk about what an incredible performance it was in every single way. The physicality, the voice, the singing performance, the costuming, the makeup. I mean, is it not just perfectly wonderful? I I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, I mean, she did a really good job of somehow making the ingenue really not a boring bitch. Like, she mm-hmm. is the ingenue, but she also is as funny, as campy, as the doctor. Yeah. Imagine somehow being the ingenue and be that'd be like that'd be like watching Les Mis and that somehow Fontaine was as funny as uh Tenardier. You know who I give that same um that same credit to is Marissa J. Winoker, uh from the original from the original uh, cast of Harris Brown Broadway. Like she turned the ingenue into this like a character that is as fun as any other character in the play. Well, it speaks to what you were saying about the layers of this movie too, Bob, because w- one of the really great things I think about Ellen Green's performance in this movie is is how layered it is because you know she's got that voice which feels put upon feels camp but then when she sings and you hear the like real power underneath it not only works for the character but then you also start kind of peeling back the onion and you're like oh she's pushing herself down to be in this world and it gives you chills because it's so unexpected so actually okay michael that brings up my next question i wanted to ask you both and i think we should all answer favorite number you can only choose one, and this is a movie oh. where the numbers are numbers, right? Like, yeah. they, they, yeah. they, 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 they deliver it. It is a satisfying musical. So what is your favorite number? You can only choose one. I'm going to say it, it, it. It's unusual that it would be where it is in the movie, but it was so my favorite that I went back and rewatched it when we were done last night. But that Skid Row number at the top of the film, you know, where they're they're singing and the choreography of the Skid Row uh, neighborhood people moving through no, the streets. No, you, you, you're doing everything. Skid Row or Little Shop. Little Shop is at the top of the movie. Skid no, no, Row. No, no, no. I'm there. talking about Skid Row. L- Little it, Shop, it. of course. Little Shop um, is the credits. It's 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 the show opener. But I mean, like Skid Row. At that that early on in the show, to have that much depth and that much emotion, and just the 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 way it's delivered in the film, to me it was it was strikingly beautiful. The song, the choreography, the set design, the costume, the ensemble, the way they uh, feature uh, the ensemble is really yeah. great. Genius. The way that in the very the very end they're doing that. Um, oh, I mean, there's a part where where all the the unhoused are climbing up mm-hmm. that yeah. fence. Yes. And there's also the last shot where they're all doing that foot tap. I mean, I've seen this movie too many times. By the way, I didn't even <laughs> review the movie for this podcast because I've seen the movie so many fucking times. Right. Um, that is a it's a really and it also shows how tiny they are in this world because everything around mm-hmm. them like they really get, in Skid Row they really get swallowed up by their surroundings. Which I think is some sort of a, a depiction of how small they feel in their world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what what are your favorite numbers? Oh boy! All right, so I'm I'm gonna have to talk this out in my head because there's some really fucking great. But you can only choose, choose one at the end. One. All right, so um, it's feed me, get it. This is the one where where uh-huh. he's talking to the plant, and the plant like feed me. It's the first time the plant says feed me, 
in mm. the movie, which is like it's the first time when it talks. It is it is this huge iconic moment. But then there's another one called "Come On," where they're where they're like urging him, like "Come on, come on." They're doing this whole encouraging thing. "Come on, come on." I remember when I first saw the urchins, they were like in the shadows, and they take a step out, and it's wild. Mushnik is about to get eaten. The the way that it is done, it is so creepy and scary while still remaining campy and funny um and also like just cinematically beautiful the song is called supper time i, I just like i can't say it's, yeah. it's, it's called supper time it's like it's, it's mostly talking and it's got like mushnik like marching seymour up the stairs imagine how betrayed seymour must feel in this moment and then all of a sudden at the very end when the plant just slowly leans down at the perfect time and like opens this like just disgusting looking mouth and then at that moment the the urchins come out of the shadows and then it's the way they're like beautifully dressed in these like sequin looks they're usually either wearing like their street girl stuff or there's this like uh, in this they're in these like sequin with these like chiffon scarves and you can like barely see them it's probably it's my haunting. favorite and then, and then yeah. s- seeing uh, Mushnik's legs <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. the plant's mouth <laughs> yeah. like bit it was that's probably my favorite scene in the movie that's a good answer I would not have thought you would have chosen that when you describe it as it was happening last night uh, I remember thinking this is fucking amazing you know like right? like as a creator you're just like oh my god you guys nailed it i think that's the truth of every number in this as you said that's when true. you asked this question every number has such a powerhouse punch that like like bob i was like but i love this one and i love this one but similarly to bob's answer i think my choice because when i listen to the soundtrack it's one that i always kind of go back to uh is the meek shall inherit because i think well, you know, Peaches, that I love uh, a dark dual meaning. And that song, of course, has that final punch. You know, the meek are going to get what's coming to them. And the urchins, as our Greek chorus of the movie, are literally telegraphing the ending of the film. They're like, this fucker is feeding people to the plants and he's going to get what's coming to him. Of course, we get the Hollywood ending instead if you saw it in the theater. But I just I just love the darkness of of that song. I love that it's delivered in this pop way. And they are they're amazing. It's also got that great scene when all the urchins are playing the, the secretaries. And like, yeah, yeah. Typing oh, on the yeah. typewriters. Again, again, <laughs> uh, just another great filmic moment. Like really thoughtful, and and it's it's only on screen for a moment, but awesome and memorable. In my analogy, where I compare this to Macbeth, Seymour is Macbeth. Okay. You would think that the urchins would be the witches, but they're not the witches. The urchins are Lady Macbeth. Because in Macbeth, Lady Macbeth is the one who's always encouraging Macbeth to do the things. You know, saying you're not a man if you don't do this, which is what the urchins are always doing. They're like, come out of the shadows, you know, it's supper time. Come on, Seymour, sign it. Come on, Seymour, sign that contract. And then um, Duncan is um, Mushnik and the plant is the witches. The plant plays the witch is predicting a thing. I think I might have said that before. I just want to make sure that you I did. cleared up that. Yeah. There's so many things about this fucking movie. I could talk about it forever. It is one of the best movies. When Bob and I were talking about uh, what movie to have uh, her come on and discuss, I had actually was trying to push you to choose the color purple. Because, one, we've gone on and on for many years about the fact that Bob thinks I should create a stage show called The Color Blurple. And yes. I... Uh, <laughs> and I um, 
have have politely declined because uh, <laughs> uh, of a number of things. One. I share that obsession with Bob, and I would love to have Bob back on and for us to treat The Color Purple as the true cult movie it is. Because I think as kids, especially when that movie came out, I watched that movie over and over and over and over again. And I still think it's a fascinating film. And people don't think of it as a cult film, but it is, especially for a lot of us queer kids. Is it too popular to be a cult movie? That was so popular. Popular movie can be cult. You know, the the point to me of, of defining cult these days is, is there a, a an audience of people who uh, will keep this film alive forever because they love it so much? And it speaks to... When you can quote a movie the way gay men can quote The Color Purple, that's cult, mm-hmm. you know? You right. show is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I mean, and, you know, and I have to be—I have to be careful about quoting it, right? Like, yeah. so Bob, Bob, Bob can quote every line. I used to quote it more often. Now I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll leave that to probably the best quote from the movie. Oh, there's so many great ones. There's also the line where um, the little kid goes, "It's gonna rain on your head." Is a great line. <laughs> it's a great um, line. Oh, and your children are so clean. Would you like to come work for me? But I love the whole um, Miss Sophia home. Oh, yeah. Sophia home. Now, things don't change around here. I love that. And I love when the old, when the old man goes, maybe she be fit to out the caboose. Okay, so that, that's just that's just a preview, uh, Midnight Mass audience, of, of what's to come when we have Bob back on to talk about The Color oh, yeah. Purple. Have me on they, as soon as possible. I will come back okay. to The Color Purple immediately. Okay, and then, yes. and then we will. We'll, we'll, we'll do a, a follow-up to... Um, Little Shop when the the remake comes out or whatever because we just love this movie so much and um, before we go though I wanted to say I really think it's worth noting that the reason I pushed this after The Color Purple is because when Bob and I first met it was before she was on Drag Race and so we did a show together in New York she was in in our Grey Garden show and um, afterwards she said to me which I I loved we stayed friends we stayed in touch and she said I really want to be doing stuff similar to what you're doing and I've actually written a script and and you emailed it to me and I read it and I it was a great script and it's a drag parody of Little Shop of Horrors uh, yes. and it's called Little Shop of Horrors um, and you know uh, <laughs> instead of a big talking plant it's a big talking vagina and yes. instead of drinking blood you can imagine what it drinks use your imagination <laughs> Well, I'm going to finance this right now. Yeah, right? So, Bob, we never we never actually made it, but we, we talked about me producing it and me coming to New York and doing it. So here's the thing, Bob. It's a great script. I mean, I think it could be updated a little bit, and we could actually – I think we could actually flesh it out, no pun intended, but um, – <laughs> Or maybe it was intended, but Bob, let let's wow. do it. I think I think right now you're you know maybe we'll do a reading. Maybe we'll do it at like like an online okay. reading. I mean it does, it does need to be updated. There are some jokes in there that I, that I do not stand by anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was very funny, very well written, and I we, I did a a very short run, like a three day run of it at the Lucky Chang's on the Lower East Side in the back room. We sold out. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking do, I'm, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna be the fucking Peaches Christ of the East Coast. <laughs> These bitches cannot wait. And then I, I wrote a parody of Chicago. I started writing a parody of Chicago. All I got around to was writing the song All That Jizz. Um, but 
I wrote a version called He Chicago. Which was, <laughs> oh, no. I know. Even that now. But I mean, it's yeah, a, even, yeah, that is not, that doesn't scan as well anymore either. It's so great that, you know, one, Lucky Chang's for everyone who knows uh, Bob works there, but that is a legendary establishment. Um, the fact that you love this film so much, it actually, it really speaks to why you can create a great parody. And I think that I know you're very, very busy. You're a very busy queen, very successful queen. And there were some other things I wanted to ask you about that we haven't had time for, because I, I think a lot of people don't know that you love musicals, right? Like, they don't love know that musicals, about your yeah. your your um, yourself. Like, I love that you love musicals. And, and, and let's end on this. You're actually working on a new musical project, or you've been working on a new musical project, um, which I think sounds so fantastic. Um, can you tell us a little about it? I am writing a musical called Harriet Tubman Live in Concert. Um, the concept is Harriet Tubman, while being an abolitionist and a scout for the U.S. military and a suffragette um, and the first woman to ever lead a military mission, um, the whole time she was putting pen to paper, writing her opus magnum and creating a hip-hop album. And it <laughs> is a concert. So you're there and you're seeing Harriet Tubman's full concert. And we're we're working it out where we're going to get a run in i mean of course everything's been delayed because of coronavirus but um, we're going to try to get a run in new york city um and it is imagine if headway were written by lin-manuel miranda and it was about harry tubman that's basically what it is uh i want to see that so bad right michael doesn't it sound amazing that sounds amazing yeah yeah it's and the album is called harry tubman queen of the underground so good so good well Bob, I, 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 I'm such a huge fan. As you know, you're not only my drag daughter, but like someone I could not be more proud of uh, just as a friend, like just some as someone I really deeply love for real, as some, someone I consider chosen family. And so uh, I, I hope you'll continue to be a guest on this podcast. And I don't at all like hold a grudge that you and Monet have never, you know, like had me on your podcast. Like it, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> Can I just say that I've had you on my own private. You and I did our own private only child like I did with Jinx. That's true. It was before we we're doing video. Now that I know that we're doing video, I would I would like to do one again with video. Okay. And I will say that it seems like it's pretty clear that the problem's Monet and not me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Bob. All right. Bye. Thank you, Bob. Bye everyone. that was our interview with the amazing and illustrious Bob the Drag Queen. You know, Peaches, I have to say that I love Bob's passion for this movie and I love how much she loves it. But you know how much I really enjoy uh, digging deeper into cult films and sort of the allegory and the presentation. So when Bob was talking about her read of Little Shop as kind of parallel to Shakespeare's Macbeth, that really just lit me up. Like, that's the kind of shit that I live for. And I, I just really... Um, appreciated that dissection but also that dissection really just speaks to bob's love of this film oh yeah i mean you can tell in that interview and it's contagious uh i think we were all just getting so excited but when you love something as much as bob loves little shop of horrors it's just wonderful to hear her talk about you know all the uh, all the little details all the little um moments that that are, are so delicious for her that she's been able to pick up on and certainly 
making the connection between you know uh, this story and and uh, Shakespearean uh, classic is very astute. You know, Bob's just a really smart queen. You know, she's just clearly can play silly and stupid on stage as a comedian very very well. But behind the scenes, like that person, oh my God, you know, she is a smarty. And it just is truly a testament to the power of these movies, though. I think, you know, it, it is almost beating a, a dead horse at this point. But to remind people, this is why Midnight Mass exists to begin with. You know, the idea that we love these movies so much that there's always something new to discover about them. But our obsessions with these movies cause us to, like, really break them down to their very, very DNA and we love that too. And I, I think that, you know, these kind of things every week when we record cause me to just walk away feeling like, yeah, this is it. This is why we do it. Yeah. And I really hope that, um, you know, Bob, obviously, uh, when she first presented her parody script to me, it was before she had gone on Drag Race. Um, I had gone to New York and I, I was with Jinx, my other drag daughter. <laughs> and and uh, th- this is, oh, yeah. Oh, there has been, I mean, talk about sibling rivalry. I could tell you stories <laughs> about the two of them. Um, in fact, I did Jinx's podcast uh, not too long ago, uh, if you want to hear me and Jinx. Although, you know, she's been on this podcast as well. We're one big happy family. But I think it was on Jinx's podcast where we recently revealed some of the tension that occurred um, when Bob asked, you know, if I would be her drag mother. You know, there, there was a little bit of a spat we actually have had a pretty good run of having your drag children on the show because we've had That's Jinx. true. We've yeah. had Bob of Ruka Bath Salts, who we had on as yeah. well. Um, are there That's true. any other children of Christ running out there that we need to be aware of? Like, is this going to turn into uh, like a, a Maury Povich episode soon? Or <laughs> You know, it might because... The thing is, I've always been a reluctant um, drag mother because uh, I'm a firm believer in um, drag queens, you know, such as myself, you know, really, you know, beginning um, and making mistakes and and sort of being boogers and and figuring things out and like just getting, you know, uh, working um, harder on it and, and figuring it all out. And so, you know, when people would ask, I would actually politely decline and say like, oh my God, I think that you're better off on your own. I don't know that I'd be a good drag mom because traditionally it was about like teaching a queen how to do her makeup and kind of showing her the ropes. But then as I got older and I had drag children, like especially Jinx and Bob who were already so, by the time that we started working together, they didn't need any help when it came to like how to be a drag queen. It was more like a true kind of loving mentorship, you know, maybe some business advice and um, being kind of a, uh, uh, a support for them and collaborator. I mean, definitely they, they run things by me as far as, you know, creative stuff that felt much more comfortable. I will say that my abortion, uh, which is Veruca is one that, um, I really appreciate because she's such, she's so, such a true child of the popcorn. I mean, she's a hot mess and, you know, and embraces it in every way. And, you know, I don't think aspires to win drag race like the other two actually true. did. You know, so uh, th- it's a well-balanced family. 
Well, and this is a good aside. I, you know, we'll get back to Little Shop of Horrors in a brief moment. But since we're talking about this, when we did Death Becomes Her, you did on the air reference to Jinx and Ben that I have a drag name, Waffles Extravaganza. That's which right. you actually gave me because Peaches loves loves giving people drag names. Now, I will clarify for listeners, Waffle, Waffles Extravaganza is a character that sort of exists nebulously. I think of her as, as like Maris <laughs> on Frasier. We talk about her, but you never see her. While I do costumes and things, I've never quite done drag. We've never put you in a full drag look. You've put me like in Glamour Frankenstein and things like that. Yeah. And I, and you know I do my own stuff. But I guess like in some way... We uh, need you to serve cunt. <laughs> but because <laughs> because you named me, there's some weird drag familial uh, connection in there somewhere, whatever it is. I wouldn't necessarily call you mom, but I would call you like Wicked Step Aunt or something. That's where I think I have an extended family from all these years. Uh, I do not claim Martini. There are certain drag queens who I do not, you know, claim whatsoever. Um, Cousin Wonderlet is not my fucking problem. You know what I mean? Like that is definitely Lady Bear's abortion. And I, uh, and I love that we have these sort of weird drag families and there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, crossover and like with any family tree, it gets complicated. So um, anyway, uh, I, I, we've we've digressed a lot, uh, and that's okay because we're going to get back it. on track. Yeah, but, but but worth it. But you know, it is fun to have these family members on the show because you know there is so much history, and because we get to talk about some stuff that we don't always really get to sit down and talk about. And so I do think Bob is going to be a recurring guest, and so I look forward. You, hey, listeners, you. Let us know what do you want Bob to come back on and talk about my vote is probably going to be for the color purple but let us know well speaking of people we have history with luckily uh you know we are not just joined by Bob the drag queen this week we all are also joined by another amazing guest who uh happens to be someone I know and have worked with she was in a a series that I directed but you know uh, she has such a prominent mark in the world of, of fandom and geek fandom. You can see her at Comic-Con. She hosts The Walking Dead's Twitch channel show, The TWD Universe. She's been in movies like Poltergeist and December and this new Lifetime movie, Psycho Storm Chaser. Uh, and I, I absolutely love her. She is truly an icon of fandom, Clark Wolf. And we're going to talk to her about her deep, deep love of Little Shop of Horrors right now. Greetings and welcome back. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the community members who make it up. And luckily this week, we are joined not just by an avowed Little Shop of Horror fan, but an actress, writer, producer, and host who you see every week hosting shows on The Walking Dead Twitch channel, TWD Universe, as well as in movies such as Deathcember, Poltergeist, Satanic Panic, and the recent Lifetime movie, Psycho Storm Chaser. Please welcome to the show the amazing Clark Wolf. Oh, boy, what an intro. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Yes, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Peaches. It's so exciting to have you here, Clark, especially to talk about this movie, because I know that you are quite a fan of this particular film. So that then begs the question, 
When did you first discover Little Shop of Horrors? When I was a kid, for sure. I was uh, a music. I was an, always been interested in film, television, pop culture since I was little, little, little since I can remember, and um, was a singer and dancer and on stage and doing all the things. So um, I, I was made aware of this movie when I was really young, and um, certainly didn't understand all of the the themes and the the gags. But um, but I I definitely I never got to be in this show though I was thinking about that earlier my high school did it but I was just a little young um, and meaning like for the high school and I wasn't even able to audition but did were y'all ever in a production of Little Shop? I wish Yeah me too Our, our other guest this week Bob the Drag Queen has been in the show uh, so at least of you know throughout this episode someone has got to barely grace the boards <laughs> <laughs> I love Bob, and you know she she w- was the first to admit that she was in the chorus <laughs> because she you know she she doesn't quite have I mean and neither do I I think I think for the show to to work obviously you know your your ability to sing well uh, and do the music justice is is a big component and Bob and I while we can maybe carry a tune here or there we're not cut out for being the leads in Little Shop but I would just love to work on a production of it and there've been many like. Like a few, uh, which we talk about in our other interview lately, that I wish I could have seen. Michael, you saw the one starring MJ Rodriguez um, from Pose, which was apparently incredible. And then everyone in the UK who saw the one starring Vicky Vox. And Vicky mm. Vox actually played uh, Audrey 2, uh, which is such great casting. You know, she had a, like a kind of an Audrey 2 drag queen costume. Right. Oh, I just love this show. And we would be remiss to not mention the recent Broadway revival that featured Jake Gyllenhaal and Ellen Green returning to the role of Audrey. I had tickets to that. Uh, I was living in L.A. and, you know, so would obviously have to be traveling across the country. And for whatever reason, I think it was my girlfriend and I got tickets, but I had to like it was one of those times where money was really tight. So I had the tickets and I was going to go. But then I had to like work that weekend or something. And it was the type of thing where I couldn't take it off. So I think she took both of the tickets if I remember correctly so I was supposed to go and see it but unfortunately I just I couldn't make it work that's crushing well I guess the next question I have for you would be in an ideal world you are cast in a production who would you want to play Okay, so when I was younger like as in when I was in high school and had much much less self-consciousness. I'm from Georgia and um, well, yes, I grew up in the suburbs, so, you know, not gonna misrepresent my origin story here, but um, I always loved jazz and I always loved Motown and, you know, and I would in my room have a lot of fun when no one was home pretending I was Audrey too and trying to sing like Levi Stubbs, which is so funny if you hear my Disney princess voice, but I used to be able to do it. I really did. I used to be able to sing, sing in a different way. And now I'm older and much more shy and self-conscious. So when I was a kid, I would say, I would say Audrey too. But now I, I, I'm actually learning um, Suddenly Seymour with my voice teacher right now. So that's what I would say. Yeah. So great. Okay. Well, that, that's a great answer. I mean, and I think that um, speaks to the magic of being a kid and being attracted to this film because the 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 execution of Audrey 2 both from the puppet point of view uh 
And then the performance of Levi Stubbs is so incredible. You know, it's the perfect marriage. I was just going to say that I was rewatching the film today before we started recording, and it really just, I think, is a testament to Frank Oz uh, as the director, but also, you know, just movie musicals used to be, because obviously they're expensive, but they used to be a little more risky. And I was noticing the cast of this movie, like, yes, our leads are character actors and they're all white, but pretty much everyone else is an interesting face, a person of color, a gorgeous voice, a different sound, you know? And, and it's like now everything is so tame and shiny and glossy. There's no grit. Um, it was just, I was noticing that today as I was rewatching. Well, it's interesting that you say that musicals are risky because, of course, we know they are. But one of the things that we've talked about a little bit uh, in the discussion of this movie on this episode is how this musical is a musical. Yes. And, and by that, I mean, there seems to be a tendency, especially now, when making a movie musical to kind of hold back, to not allow the uh, the camera and the audience to live in that world. And I think part of what really makes Little Shop of Horrors excel is it's not just a translation of a stage show. It's a, it's a musical that has been adapted cinematically. I wrote two notes here. And there's the two things that I wanted to say on this podcast were exactly what you just said, Michael. That was one of them. I mean, you know, this is a movie. This is a movie musical. And um, and again, Frank Oz is a great director. And, and I think to make a mu movie musical that feels special, it's not as simple as a one size fits all, like, well, we got a choreographer to direct it, you know, or, or we got somebody, you know, I think it has to be the real right fit. And I think Frank Oz was really um, the right person to do this. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was actually thinking um, about this as well. Um, and, and as I've discussed through this entire podcast, um, I hate the fact that I had been sleeping on Little Shop of Horrors because I knew it was great. I watched it as a kid, but somehow in my evolution as probably a horror kid who, who started to, to discover more extreme things and kind of maybe um, less musicals or, or you know, uh, leaned harder into things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Phantom of the Paradise, I realized as an adult rewatching it like, this is a perfect film. This is like a brilliant, brilliant, just cinematic gem, a true gem in every way. And I, I feel like I have to make up for lost time. Like, I'm like, oh, am I gonna watch this every week for the next 10 years? <laughs> like, I actually, I actually might do that because it's that good. And then I was thinking about the fact that it is, it, it, it was a film first, we know that, and then it was an off-Broadway show, um, which I think was really great because it probably allowed them to, you know, go to an edgier place. Um, and then Frank Oz comes along and does a big budget movie and it's so well done. And so I was thinking, okay, what are the other examples of movies turned musicals turned movie musical and the only one I can think of off the top of my head is John Waters Hairspray um, which of course you know John Waters did a film not a musical uh, then that film was turned into a musical a Broadway musical and then the Broadway musical was turned into a movie musical now personally I um, 
uh, of course, I'm a John Waters purist. I think that the, the first film is the, the best version of that story with Ricky Lake and Divine. Um, I would not agree with Little Shop of Horrors. I, I think it's 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 the other way around, right? Where I think the film version... Now, I never saw the off-Broadway shows, to be fair. And I did see the Broadway version of Hairspray. And I liked the Broadway version of Hairspray. Um, but I didn't much care for the movie, you know? Um, so it, it is an interesting thing. Like, these things don't always... Just because you like this thing doesn't mean you're going to like that thing. And And with the Frank Oz film, it's like, wow, he nailed it. Not easy to do. You know what I think, too? This was the second point that I really wanted to make today, and I think it goes off of exactly what you're saying, Peaches. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in on stage, when Harvey Firestein is playing, you know, the, the mother in Hairspray, we know it's somebody in drag. Whereas in the film... John Travolta does not play that role that way, which is a choice, and that's fine. I think what I'm getting at, though, is there is a joke that works on stage of having Harvey Firestein specifically with the voice and everything mm-hmm. in, you know, in the role and in the costume that I think the movie, like, it's it's intentional, basically. Whereas in the film, we we don't do that. We, we lose the point that in that role is making. And I think that it's similar with Little Shop. Little Shop is funny. And like, that's, that's what a lot of these glossy movie musicals now are, don't get is that nobody has, nobody's actually funny. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. I get why this works on stage. Now I'm just going to do it. And it's like, no, I I specifically wanted to shout out Steve Martin um, in, you know, which, which is the Uh. clip show reel that everybody points to. But like his opening number or Steve Martin's first number is perfect. Mm -hmm. It is perfect. It is funny. The jokes work. And the shot where he's, you know, the mouth is in the foreground, the puppetry, the tongue is moving like this, and the teeth are disgusting. (laughs) Like, that is funny, and that's subversive, and that's interesting, and that's in this movie. And so it's stuff like that that was able to be maintained in the film version that I really appreciate, and I think is what sets it apart from the movie musicals that we have today. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring up the subversion, and that I think is a great way to transition into what I want to discuss with you a little bit about this film. As you said, when you discovered it as a kid, it was funny even if you maybe didn't get everything yet. Now, Peaches has revealed uh, over the course of this episode that she's getting this great rediscovery of the movie as an adult. And watching the movie as an adult, and I think is true of so many cult films, that we grow with as we keep finding new things about it. And the thing about Little Shop is the older you get is it stays funny, but it also gets much darker. Yes. And there's a lot of like layers in this movie about, uh, you know, socioeconomic status that are, are discussed, you know, or like not veiled misogyny, outright misogyny and, and sort of how Audrey speaks in this light voice. But then when she sings as a powerhouse and you then learn in that moment, she's keeping herself small to be what other people want her to be. And I'm wondering, as you've grown with this movie, how has this movie grown with you? It's both the things you just said, actually. So I, I watch, because I am a grandma, I watch everything with the captions on nowadays. <laughs> and so um, the, the setting was all ready to have the captions on. And I, I was tired and I was like, all right, I'll just leave it out. How do I turn this off? Fine, for, forget it. But 
watching the lyrics pop up with the visuals, um, specifically with uh, Down on Skid Row, um, uh, you know, that it was, I was just like, wow, this is about something. Mm. These lyrics are pointed and these lyrics are, because you know, this, the music in this movie is, or in the show is fabulous and it's funny and it's, it's really good music um, and it's great musical theater, but yeah, they're saying something with this. And that really stood out to me. And it was, um, it was especially as we discuss and are becoming more and more and more and more aware about the, the class, you know, the, the differences in class, especially in, in America. It, it just, yeah, it really hit hard. And then Audrey, it's so broad that it's hard to take most of it seriously with the um, abuse, right? But at the same time, I'm just more sensitive to it, I think, now, to where I'm like, this is awful. And then, on top of it, the scene that's done in Shadow, where he grabs her off the motorcycle and brings me, and he slaps her so hard. I mean, that stuff really sits a lot harder with me, you know? It, 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 weighs, it weighs a lot heavier on me, I should say. I think we are all in agreement around that. I'm not, I, and I wouldn't say that I think it, it should be changed at all, but it's the thing where um, maybe as adults, especially, we know it comes from a really real place and a really awful place. And so so the lyrics to um, Down on Skid Row and the, the uh, uh, certainly the domestic violence, it just plays differently, you know, um, unless maybe you're a kid who grows up in those um, environments, you know, um, but I l luckily wasn't uh, one of those kids. I was pretty, you know, privileged. And so, you know, watching it as an adult and knowing how many people, you know, survive those situations, um, it, it, it does play really intensely. And I think it actually is part of the strength of the film that they that they kind of go there in an edgy way same things with the the, the the murders you know they 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 don't you know shy away from it now where they did shy away uh from things um and i'd love to get your opinion on this is in the finale you know in the ending so the movie of course as we've discussed had an ending that was the original ending to the show and then it was uh changed for the release of the film and so clark i'm assuming you've seen the alternate ending yes of destruction uh which we, <laughs> we recommend everyone go check out online it's not that hard to find what do you think your preference is i love a dark ending i love a good dark ending and I I'm I'm totally fine with that um also keeping you know in vein of like a little bit of the the twilight zone nature of it you know this like sort of which sounds I know like a silly comparison but I think setting it in this time period and you're dealing with a nerdy guy who encounters an alien and then has all of his dreams come true but there's a price that's not Twilight Zone didn't invent that obviously but that was something that kind of stood out to me this time around was like oh this is this is your traditional science fiction horror morality tale which I think is interesting um but that said I do think that for the film of the time in the time the ending is is fine you know it feels appropriate um but i i will also say that on stage like if i if you ask me about what what should be on stage oh we should absolutely uh just destruct <laughs> everything is destruct uh, destruction and mayhem and chaos and audrey two wins like of course um but i do think for a movie that maybe families would go see and so on you know i i get why they made the decision 
decision. And I will say too, all jokes aside, this doesn't feel as egregious to me. There are some of these types of things in movie history where you're just like, what? Uh, <laughs> but but this one this one feels okay to me. But I'm curious what both of you think of that. We've talked about this a little bit, and I have an affinity for the darker ending uh, because I feel like it's honest. I like that you made the, the comparison to a Twilight Zone episode because a lot of Twilight Zone episodes and how Rod Serling would construct a story is they ultimately were sort of tales of just desserts. You had everything that you needed to know at the beginning and yet the twist really if you're paying attention shouldn't be a surprise but it always is because our human nature does not allow us to fully wrap our mind around our own fallibility. And what's really fascinating about Little Shop of Horrors is the only honest character in this entire movie is the plant. Yep. From from the beginning of the plant to the end of the movie, you know exactly what it wants. It never is unclear about its motives. And everybody else has to put up a facade. Everybody else has to uh, lie. I mean, in the case of Audrey, she's not honest because she has to not be honest to protect herself. Hers is maybe the most like altruistic dishonesty. But, you know, Seymour lies for this reason, for fame and to get the girl. Mushnik lies for profit. You know, Scrivello, the doctor, is just like a dishonest, terrible human being. And so, in a way, when the plant wins, you're kind of like, well, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I agree with both of you. And, and by that I mean I probably prefer the darker ending for sort of storytelling and thematic reasons and especially um, today with everything we're struggling with climate change and, and the environment um, you know when this movie was made it was not a, a hot topic um, and so messing with mother nature and those themes or not taking care of mother nature uh, love all of that but I also think um, I rewatched the film and at the end of the film before going and in, in watching on the internet the alternate ending I said to my partner that was a perfect film that was a perfect film so I, I'm kind of I'd be a hypocrite if I said oh no, no no it has to be this alternative ending then I watched the alternative ending I'm like and I like that too <laughs> you know so it, it's that thing where he it's like he's so talented I think he made it work in a way like that Clark points out which is you know, for a lot of other films, for a lot of other stories, you could not switch it from a dark ending to a happy ending and not have the entire project suffer. And in this case, that's not what happens. I think the film is still great, but would it have been better? I don't know. I hesitate to say. And an example of a movie where you couldn't have done that would be something like Fight Club, you know, right. where you have to blow all the shit up, right? Like that's that's what right. the whole movie's kind of leading up to. So I was imagining like, well, if they had a happy ending for Fight Club, that movie would have sucked. You know, I, I don't <laughs> think you could have done that. <laughs> right. Then I think it just begs the question because with each ending, we get a different song. And so it's like, what song do you like more? Do you like Mean Green right. Mother from Outer Space or Don't Feed the Plants? I, I love them both. Yeah. But there is something about a, a chorus, you know, of people singing uh, in the streets while this Godzilla-like plant just rolls over New York <laughs> that I quite enjoy. <laughs> the, the visuals are, are, are clutch. I do love Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, though. It's a I good mean, one, truly, yeah. truly like that. But again, I'm I'm in love with with uh, Levi Stubbs' voice, you know? And so, yeah, I but I love that number. I think we're all in agreement. It's just all so good. And... Something that we haven't really touched on, but I think is interesting as well, as far as the way the movie 
um, continues to, to have lessons, especially today, is the, the, the Skid Row opening, one of the things politically that's interesting is how much uh, th- there is diversity on what we're seeing on screen. And we, you know, we know that they, they did not cast people of color in the leads, and that was of the era. But they definitely went out of their way to make a diverse Skid Row in a way that feels like white people, Jews, black folks, Latin folks are there. And what I appreciate about that is that it's a reminder that the thing that really holds us back more than anything and what we share is uh, a class struggle. And I think a lot of movies, especially now, um, it would be nice to kind of get back to remembering that because as we are at war with one another over you know these political things, things that have been politicized, like you know whether or not to get a vaccine and and such. It's like, wait, the real enemy are these billionaires. Regardless, right. like we need to like be in this together. And and you know I loved that that is really at its core what that community of people is. And it's just such a beautiful number, and the way it's presented is just it, it's incredible. I do have to ask. Uh, we talked to Bob about this. You can't go through this movie without noting just how great every song is. Like, this is one of those where, you know, you hope with a a musical that you get one or two good numbers, but for some miraculous reason from the cult film gods, every number in Little Shop of Horrors is a banger. So, Clark, if you were forced to pick, what's your favorite song in Little Shop of Horrors? It's Feed Me. (laughs) I love the, you know, truly, like, if we're going to get super nerdy about it, I love the storytelling in that song. The thing that I think actors sometimes, Hollywood actors, and also sometimes Hollywood directors miss, is that people used to tell stories through song. And you're not just there because you want to do jazz hands and do a big number. You're telling a deeper story. And for me, the seduction in Feed Me, you know, where Audrey sort of lays it all out and tempts him with, you know, I know all the things you want. And watching Seymour struggle, but also the actual music, the slow and then the fast and the intensity and the dun dun. You know, it's like, it's so, to me, that's definitely the song that I probably sang the most alone in my bedroom when <laughs> I was playing Audrey too. I just love that song. Uh, so yeah, that's that one's gonna be mine. I wanna ask about, you know, how much this film, because, you know, we are the Midnight Mass podcast and we really love connecting the dots between people's sort of love affairs and obsessions, especially as children discover things how much this film, um, which is in its nature pretty dark, horror is in the title, how much it may have played a part in you growing up to, you know, really work a lot in the genre. It's such a good question. And it's actually, I'm going to connect it also to Wizard of Oz. So Mm. the Wizard of Oz, I think was playing in the room when my mother gave birth to me. Like I, this, (laughs) the Wizard of Oz is so deeply ingrained in, in me. And I always say, especially as a horror fan and somebody who really consumes genre, The Wizard of Oz is a representation of pretty much everything I love in in storytelling. It's scary. It's funny. It It's big and shiny. It's got gorgeous costumes. It's got a lot of heart. It'll make you cry. Um, but it'll also make you laugh and it'll also scare the hell out of you. 
And so I do think Little Shop is kind of a more gro a grown up extension of all of those same themes. Little Shop is funny mm. and Little Shop is about something. And Little Shop, the movie, you know, the the puppetry, you can't, those sets, mm. like you just fall in love. And of course, you know, it's scary. Those those murder scenes, the chopping up the bodies, like that, that the dismemberment, that's scary. And of course, then it's just absolutely fabulous. The performances are great. Bill Murray's cameo, I love. So what I'm getting at is it in many ways is absolutely all of the things that I love about consuming genre content, but also about creating genre content and strive to embody and create in my own career and life. Speaking of your own career, at the beginning of this interview, you talked about how you would sing uh, the Audrey II Levi Stubbs parts in your bedroom. And you also said that you don't uh, think that you would ever be in any of those roles singing on stage. But I happen to know that you just recently did record some singing vocals on something coming out at Halloween. And Clark, could you tell us what that is? Oh my gosh, I would love to. It's called The Killer Sounds of Halloween 3D, composed by Sean Keller. And um, he also wrote Slashed the Musical, which is a musical I had the honor to produce, but also uh, co-star in when we made our uh, premiere at the Hollywood Fringe Festival in 2017. And so I had the pleasure of singing the fake theme song to a Muppet Baby-style monster show and it is called Little Monsters, the theme to Little Monsters. It was so fun. And, and you know, it's funny because I was so nervous going in, and Sean knows that. Um, I'm working on my stage fright. I'm working on getting out of my head uh, as a singer. It was a wonderful experience. And Michael, you are featured on this album as well. Yes, I do not sing. So listeners, <laughs> you do not have to be worried about that. Uh, I do a guest spot as the voice of a radiologist who is very concerned about your Halloween candy this season. So please bring it to me so I can check it. I can't <laughs> wait to hear this. Oh my gosh, I, I love it. I love the sound of it. That is so great. It's oh. a hoot. Clark, I loved meeting you and I feel like I could talk to you all day long. I especially love you bringing up the Wizard of Oz at the end. It's so much inspiration for me as well. Mm. Is connected to my love as a child of that film. And I love um, us horror people who do connect a lot of our origins back to Margaret Hamilton specifically. I mean, yes. the witch of all witches, the best Absolutely. witch ever, ever, ever. And how those sort of villains like Audrey too or Margaret Hamilton, you know, they, they do set a stage for us and, and connecting those dots. And so I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Thank you so much, Peaches. I agree. I could talk to you all day long, hopefully in a different time and a different place. We can actually do that. Um, yeah. But this was this was so wonderful. Um, thank you both for having me. What a what a treat. Thank you, Clark. And that was the fantastic Clark Wolf. Um, again, much like Bob, what a pleasure to talk to someone who really loves this movie deeply, earnestly, and for all the right reasons. And I really loved that Clark uh, continually pointed out just how funny it is and how being funny in movies 
um, used to be a thing that people did all the time and it was part of making a great movie and they did it unapologetically and I kind of miss those days. I feel like there are too many films that come out today that are kind of humorless, you know. Right, and what I really appreciate about Clark's analysis of the film, much like what I appreciated about Bob's analysis of the film, is that they both so love this movie that they have really taken time to consider why. And I mean, that's truly the mark of a cult fan because sometimes you go see a movie, like, you know, you may go to the movies and watch Ant-Man and enjoy it, but you're maybe not driving home thinking about like, what are the deeper issues of this, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that because Clark has carried this love of this movie with her since she saw it as a kid and Clark's own work, you know, as a host at Comic-Con and with places like DC Comics and Sci-Fi Channel and really kind of examining why fandom is what it is, it has allowed her to look at the things that she loves and kind of peel back the layers on those. And what she brought to the conversation today really, I think, was was special. I love that this episode is one of those episodes where we're not talking to someone, you know, who was an actor in the film or related to someone who was in the film. Um, th- these are two um, fans who have loved this film since they were young. And we were able to really kind of see how not only has it stayed with them, um, for their entire lives, but it's really greatly um, influenced uh, their own expressions and their own work and what, what they're interested in doing. And, you know, I love that. I mean, I think it's so much of what we do on this podcast is kind of track the ways, you know, it's not just a movie. You know, th- this is bigger than, you know, being just a movie. At the core, that's us, right? You know, you <laughs> yes. talk so frequently about how growing up in Maryland and seeing Divine and John Waters set you on this path. I have spoken ad nauseum about seeing this bizarre killer tomato movie on late night television made me want to make bizarre movies of my own. And how you look at these things that are, yes, pieces of art, but also kind of these halcyon calls to the subversive that if that's what you're tuned into, it it changes you. And to sit with Clark and Bob and have them tell these tales is so cool to see how it influences their own work. But it also causes me to sit here and think about, well, this is Peaches and I, because yeah. this is what we do. And this is how our careers, this is where the podcast came from. So. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And, and if you're sitting at home and you are relating to this, this this idea that these movies are more than just a momentary experience of, of entertainment, but these are things that you absorb, <laughs> you ingest them repeatedly, and they become part of you over time. And, and they're things that you regurgitate in a number of ways. Well, that can only mean one thing. You're all children of the podcorn now. <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.